everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our newest podcast, Striker Talks. Few companies in the medical device industry touch the entire spectrum of healthcare like Striker. From accident scenes to ERs, from ORs to patient rooms, Striker delivers the supplies, tools, and devices used to provide patients with the highest quality of care. In this podcast, we'll talk with the company's leaders to gain a better understanding of how innovation, new technologies, and teamwork will further Striker's mission. Let's go. Hey everybody, this is Tom Salami of Device Talks. Welcome back to the Striker Talks podcast. Please forgive my voice. I think it probably sounds different. I have a bit of a cold, but I was perfectly fine and healthy when I talked to today's guest. He is Robert Cohen, President of Digital Robotics and Enabling Technologies at Striker. This was a conversation that honestly uh, gave me uh, goosebumps and chills at, at a couple of points when uh, Robert Cohen was talking about how data can be used to improve the uh, effectiveness of orthopedic surgery and how robotics can play a role into that. So, uh, Robert has been involved with orthopedic surgery for most of his career, and uh, he brings a great historical perspective, but also an exciting vision of the future. So I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Robert Cohen. Again, he is president of Digital Robotics and Enabling Technologies at Stryker. He'll also be on a keynote panel at Device Talks Boston, which is happening on May 10th and 11th. He was uh, part of a panel last year at Device Talks Boston and uh, had done such a great job we wanted to have him back. So uh, excited to have him there. We'll talk a bit about that in the interview. But before we begin this episode, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Viant. I'm speaking with Alton Shader. He's CEO. Alton, tell us a bit about Viant. Viant is a global medical design and manufacturing service provider. And our mission is to partner and innovate with medical device companies to provide the highest quality, life-enhancing medical devices in the world. We have 25 facilities and over 6,000 team members worldwide, and we have a unique understanding of the medical device and contract manufacturing markets due to the fact that a majority of our executive team spent a considerable amount of their careers in the med device industry where we focused on consistently delivering for hospitals and care teams and ultimately patients. Viant has expertise in design and development, material selection, injection molding, and other plastic processing, metals processing, and sophisticated assembly in both the U.S. and low-cost geographies, including China, Costa Rica, Mexico, and Puerto Rico. We have global scale and can offer full vertical integration to our customers. And our vision is to be the medical device industry's most trusted design and manufacturing service provider. And this ultimate goal is what drives our team. And this focus has led to significant growth and some really exciting times for us here in the near future. Oh, well, that is a great start. We'll have Alton Shader back a little later in the podcast. If you want to find out more information about Viant right now, you can go to its website, viantmedical.com. Com. Viant is spelled V-I-A-N-T, and then that's medical.com. Well, Robert Cohen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. We, we were just uh, recounting your your the panel you uh, were on at uh, Device Talks Boston last year. That was a great time and excited to have you back again. 
in this May. We'll talk more about Stryker's digital strategy approach and, and your, your work in surgical robotics. So looking forward to that. Yeah, we have a great story to tell, and that was a great forum. Uh, amazing amount of contacts on digital health that we made at that meeting. So looking forward to the next one. Excellent. So let's find out a bit about you before we uh, learn more about Stryker. I always like to learn how uh, how someone got to where they are. What was your your first interest in medtech? You know, it's interesting. I'm one of those rare breeds that have been uh, doing medtech for decades now, and I'm rare because I sort of knew what I wanted halfway through college and have stuck with it ever since. Very happy with that decision, I might add. I was fortunate. I went to New Jersey Institute of Technology in Newark, New Jersey for college uh, as a mechanical engineer. And one of the professors of mechanical engineering there was working with a surgeon at Hmm. the University of Medicine and Dentistry in Newark on a total knee prosthesis for total knee replacement. Oh, wow. So I was fortunate where I got to, uh, in my senior year, do some projects uh, working with them, which is kind of code for helping them in their company. Uh, (laughs) Got to stick with it. And I wound up sticking for a graduate degree there in mechanical engineering and uh, did my master's thesis on total hip and total knee replacement and had both those, a surgeon and a professor doing prostheses as my thesis advisor. Couldn't get wow. much better. Yeah. That is that is as hardcore medtech as you can get. And where did you go from there? I'm looking at my extensive research is looking at your LinkedIn profile and it begins in 2013. So uh, walk us through uh, through those, those first decade or so or two. Yeah begins to 2013 because I always said my life was like reincarnated once the Mako acquisition occurred. So that's a <laughs> shout out to Stryker there. Uh, so actually, I believe it or not, my very first job uh, leaving school was Stryker. Oh, interesting. And uh, I'll give you the years, even though you probably think I'm a lot younger. But from uh, when I graduated in 1984, I was the 35th employee at a company called Osteonics that Stryker just acquired in Allendale, New Jersey. And Stryker acquired, but it was a standalone company. So essentially, the beginning of the joint replacement division was back then. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. And I was uh, I worked for the, the two founders of the company, Alex Guelo and Bob Averill, still two mentors of mine, by the way, were the founders of the company. And they stayed with the company for a long time. And they reported into John Brown, at the time, CEO of Stryker. So, and I got to watch, and that company was an amazing company. Uh, not only were we doing really compelling hip and knee prosthesis, but it was a very fast moving and the growth of joint replacement in the 80s was just tremendous, tremendous. So I got to learn a lot, got to interact with a lot of surgeons, got to go to an awful lot of surgery and got to hone my skill in a very compressed, very exciting area of the business and loved every minute of it. That's fantastic. So how long were you with uh, Stryker after that acquisition and what was your next step from there? Yeah, so I left in 1992, watching all this innovation, and I'm an R&D guy, watching all this innovation, total knees. So I was working on total knees, total hips, custom prosthesis, oncology, shoulders, elbows, and wrists back then, by the way, not the technology we have today, mind you. And then I, I, I felt uh, the urge where maybe I would start up my own company. Mm-hmm. So got together with some other people and started a, a company called uh, Implex Corporation, Implant Excellence and develop a biomaterial called Trebeckler Metal, which was for ingrowth. So always trying to solve clinical problems, clinical issues. And at that time, in the early 90s, one of the biggest issues with hip and knee prosthesis was biologic fixation. The surfaces that we had on metal implants that had to require bone to grow into it for stability and fixation long-term 
were breaking down. Either the materials weren't very good, they weren't favorable to biology. So I had thought a new material that maybe was more highly porous, maybe a little bit more flexible, would be able to handle biologic and growth in a whole new way and resolve one of those clinical issues and over a period of time built up a, a company to do just that. Wow. Now you're a mechanical engineer. Does that uh, allow you to, to work in the material space? Actually, I'm a mechanical engineer, but a mechanical engineer who uh, went to a school that had no biomedical at the time. Biomedical is kind of a newer thing, right? So sure. We're going, back, we're going back a little while. Um, yeah, and materials and things like that. So not only did my work at osteonics allowed me to work on coatings of somebody from strikers listening, hydroxyl appetite, you know, different material coatings, different work on materials of implants, materials for coatings, looked at the biological aspects, worked in a lot of uh, cellular type studies to actually look at the behavior of cells on different materials, as well as looking at design, testing. And, you know, you were, you were jack of all trades back then. It was a smaller company. So I got exposed to new product development, R&D, research, mm -hmm. clinical research, manufacturing, marketing, regulatory. And back in those days, too, we were not allowed to design a product if we couldn't sell the product. So we had to be able to speak and articulate the merits and features and benefits of the product to surgeons. So we got a lot of exposure and just sort of carried that forward. That's a pretty smart requirement to be able to, to have your engineers be able to sort of speak to its benefits, I would think. Is it is it beneficial? Well, not only was it beneficial, but it actually allowed you to get in line more as an engineer and think more like a marketeer thinks. Yeah. So it's allowed me to relate more to marketing plans, big picture, because of that experience than I could have. And because often we were sort of the product specialist that salespeople would bring into the field where you didn't have to figure out how to get in the hospital or how to get to the surgeon. But when you had the surgeon in front of you, it became very obvious what may be important to me may not be important to the surgeon or the way I may say it may not be the way a surgeon really needs to hear it. Mm -hmm. So it allows you to translate and maybe become a more effective communicator. And that experience in talking to customers and sales reps and marketing people, I am hugely appreciative of because it really honed me into the person I am today. And it then further helped start up a smaller company where you're trying to raise money. And now you're actually talking to investors and you're talking to financial people mm -hmm. as well as well as talking animals. I want to circle back on that in a second, but what happened with Implex? That wasn't acquired by Striker 2, was it? No, there were a lot of companies. <laughs> that had a there was a lot of companies that had the choice, by the way. But that company was uh, acquired by one of our current competitors, competitors Zimmer, and that material still uh, sticks around. That was a pretty heady time, the, the 90s for medical device startups, just like biotech startups. You were having a lot of IPOs. There was a lot of excitement about the space. It was really, I think, an exciting time to be in a startup in the medtech industry. Well, actually, the 90s were fascinating, but, but you know, I will tell you, I think today's day and age is even more exciting, but because what was interesting was there were so many clinical issues, especially related to med tech. And if you just look in the world of orthopedics or hard tissue, things that deal with bone, whether trauma, spine, sports medicine, shoulders, hips and knees, your likelihood in the 90s, if you were a patient that got a total knee, there was a good chance your total knee would only last 10 years and you would need another surgery. Wow. But part of that is we did the best we could with materials limitations. Computer science wasn't to where computer science needed to be. Manufacturing processes now are completely different to be able to do things. Capability of instruments and tolerances are so much better now. So we did the best that we could, but we, we focused on certain things and we were able to solve those problems. But yet such a large clinical issue of revisions, there was a lot to go after. Fascinating. 
So I want to fast forward to Mako, but I want to make sure I don't miss anything in between. There's there's a bit of time in between there. Did you go back to being a startup executive or did you find a home at another corporate environment? So I actually worked for a year, year and a half with a company called Osteotech, sure. which is uh, demineralized bone graft and things like that, which was later acquired by Medtronic. So that kind of worked out okay too, because I was, it was involved in that. But I started up a company called uh, Pipeline Orthopedics and Pipeline Biomedical. And that was to really take a look at 3D printing and make 3D printing go fast into the into the world. So over here in New Jersey, not too far away, set up some 3D printing machines, got some people going. We started working on some hips and knees. Um, and then some people I knew that had gotten Mako Surgical, which was started before, up mm-hmm. to a certain point. They were looking about how next that they went public, go to the next level. And Mako, for the most part, a lot of those people came from different industries. They didn't necessarily have the orthopedics competency, but they knew everything that was unbelievably talented people on robotics. But I had the opportunity to partner with them. It's like, here, I will make the implants for you out of my company. And we will really get going on 3D printing implants. And I'll help you with regulatory strategy. And I'll help you with the surgeons. And I'll help you with marketing strategy. So we wound up doing that. And now eventually, and so we got 510K acceptances early, things like that. And now eventually, as you might imagine, you get to a point in 2012, 2013, where you sell more implants than robots, don't you? So a lot of the revenue now that was going to Mako is being controlled by my company. So Mako had to acquire my company. So Mako acquires my company. (laughs) I got to help run Mako. And then 23 years after I left my striker job, (laughs) I got my old job back. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Wow. I, I didn't realize about that connection with Mako. I thought they were doing their own implants in-house. And I, and I didn't know at the time that they were 3D printed. I assumed it was a more conventional manufacturing. Because I remember 2012 or so, there was there was the Mako approach, the surgical approach, the robot, surgical robotic approach. And then there was more the 3D printing of personalized implant approach by companies like Conformis. And there was sort of a debate like, which is going to which is going to take off? So this was this was not this was not for personalized. This was understood. Actually, yep. Yeah. This was actually yep. to make an off the shelf. So main ass tablet cup as an example. Yeah. That was more porous and did that fully three D printing. You know, but the benefit was it correlated very nice to what Striker's ongoing strategy because Striker was paralleling efforts as well, going big on three D printing and was going big on you know when you look at all the great things Striker did with tibial components and things like that. So it worked out well, and and the strategies there made sense. But as a company like Mako, no, they were not producing any implants internally. They were not producing any instruments internally. They were they had an unbelievable robot assembly, mm-hmm. robotic manufacturing, robotic engineers, software engineers, test engineers, validation engineers, and that was their competency. And credit to them, they stuck to their competency to try to build more applications on the robot. Um, but helping with surgeons, surgeon interaction. So even though Mako was acquired by Stryker at December of 2013, I started working with Mako uh, towards the end of 2009. Wow. So my experience prior to the Stryker acquisition, I had four or five years prior. So you were an experienced orthopedics person. You knew the market well. You knew the ability of implants. At the time, it, I could say 2009, 2010, the Mako was certainly an oddity. People were wondering if it was a necessity, if surgical robotics was just some sort of novelty. How did you view it? Once you got to know what was, that was going on, was your mind kind of blown and you were saying this is going to be outstanding or you must have believed in it, but, but what was your take on, on how it would impact orthopedics? 
And I'd like to take a quick break from this interview to bring back our sponsor, Viant. Once again, I'm speaking with Alton Shader. He is CEO. Alton, we're recording this uh, at the uh, at the transition of a new year, the beginning of a new year. So it seems like a great time to sort of reflect upon what Viant has accomplished and where Viant is headed. So could you share some details? As we close 2022 and get ready for 23, this is really the ideal time to reflect on the exciting things that are happening at Viant. Viant is growing its network and building capabilities around the world, from our design and development sites to our sites focused on molding and sophisticated assembly and really everything in between. On the design and development front, we are expanding both of our sites. We just opened a beautiful new facility outside of Boston, and we expanded our D&D West facility in the Bay Area of California as well. Out West, we added 10,000 square feet including 6,000 square feet of class seven and eight clean rooms and an extrusion development center of excellence. Both of these sites are lending their expertise to cutting edge projects for our customers. As an example, our D&D East team recently supported a robotic surgical launch and they remain very active in this space. D&D West is working on a broad range of new neuromodulation therapies from fully implantable devices to treat sleep apnea to wearable devices to treat ADHD in children. We are also developing products for improved cerebral stroke and cardiac rhythm management. So we've got some pretty impactful work from these teams going on right now. We're also wrapping up major expansions at our nearshore facilities, including our complex assembly and molding sites in Costa Rica and Tijuana. We're adding over 70,000 square feet of clean room space in these two facilities alone. It's a significant investment for us, but it's required based on the growth we're experiencing and the future opportunities that are available. As we reflect on the past few years, which have been challenging for all the reasons that those listening understand, Viant has proven to be an ideal partner for large, complex transfers, and this is fueling our growth and necessitating the investment I just described. And we're just excited to move forward and to continue to serve our customers. And finally, Alton, I'm sure you think about this a lot, but what sets Viant apart from other companies? Yeah, thanks, Tom. I I think what sets us apart is our culture. Our capabilities are important, but in the end, you want a partner that you can trust. And it would be very hard to identify a word more important to the Viant team and to me than trust. It's the core of our vision and it shines through in everything that we do. So this is why we've built a global network focused specifically on meeting the needs of our customers and the patients that they serve. It starts with our leadership who have truly walked a mile in our customer's shoes as our executive team has over 100 years experience leading and working at med device companies. But it's deeper than that. All of our team members at Viant understand that every device or component we make can have an impact on someone's life. And that informs how we act every single day and we truly want to deliver for these folks. Bottom line is we are here to serve our customers and the patients that they serve. When you work with Viant, you can expect quality manufacturing, accountability from the bottom up and top down, and a trusted partnership you can count on from day one. That's great. Thank you, Viant, for sponsoring. And thank you, Alton Shader, for sharing your insights. Once again, if you'd like to find out more information about Viant, go to its website, Viant, that's V-I-A-N-T, ViantMedical.com.
you must have believed in it. But but what was your take on on how it would impact orthopedics? So we don't have to go back to twenty eight. So go back to two thousand nine when I first started with Mega. Okay, yeah, two thousand nine. So, yeah. So I'm an R and D guy at heart. Innovation, problem solving of clinical issues. Clinical issues are not necessarily that someone implant got loose and they needed to go to the hospital for a reoperation. A clinical issue of a person's not satisfied with their implant, a clinical issue is that that person can't walk right, a clinical issue if that person's in pain. Now, some of those things are lost. So if I asked you, hey, someone got a total knee and what was the gauge of success? Well, back in the 80s and 90s, you know what? I'll just keep using total knee as an, experience, as an example. But what was the problem back in the 90s and 80s? Well, these implants would loosen and the person would need a new implant or the materials would wear and they mm -hmm. need a new implant. Then what happened more in the 2000s as implants got better in materials, the implants didn't fail, but the implants were not necessarily in the right place for that patient. Your knee is different than my knee. Your joint line is different than me. Your arthritis was very different. And so when I was thinking that, geez, we have the standardized set of manual instruments. We're making a lot of people into all the same average patient, mm. but there's no such thing as an average person. And because I was afforded the opportunity to be in the OR, hundreds, it, it probably if I totaled up, probably a thousand plus cases. When you start to look at the way surgeons plan for implants, and if you look where the implant goes, and then if you thought about the bone preparation, this was not individualized medicine. We were cutting everyone at three degrees for this cut. Everyone mm -hmm. was going to get three degrees for this. Everyone's going to get their tibia here. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's right. And only in the world of orthopedics, if you're if you're a surgeon, you do the femur, prepare the femur, and do that separate. Okay, then we're done with the femur. Okay, now we're going to go look at the tibia. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to put two trials on it. We're going to hope it all works together. Wow. When it okay. Right? So that concept to me in living and breathing and designing systems was, okay, there's some variability here. So clinical issues were materials at first, then clinical issues were design. Then the clinical issues were the bio-integrity of the ingrowth for fixation. Now we're getting into the next round of solving clinical issues. A lot of it's gonna have to do with where that implant is in that specific patient. Could I design tools that are manual to be able to do that? No, that's where in 2009, my love for the robot. Wow. That's why I said, okay, let's do implants because implants still can evolve and better for 3D printing can make implants better. But now let's get into that point of planning for a specific patient. But then if you plan for the specific patient, which you do off a CT scan, make a bone model and be able to have a representation of that actual person. Then the next is how do you execute that unique plan? for that unique patient. That's where I didn't think it's possible with humans. A robot was the way to do it, where you take a digital plan that's three-dimensional and you put it on a piece of equipment in the operating room called a robot. And then that robot helps execute the plan with location relative to the patient that you can't do with your eyesight, that you can't do by holding in your hand a manual instrument. Now, if you reestablish someone's joint line correctly in their knee, and if you match their articulating surfaces and their patella was in the right spot and their collateral ligaments were tensioned correctly, and you reduce soft tissue trauma by moving the saw where it doesn't need to be, how could a patient not benefit from it? And we thought that would be the case. So partial knees, 
where you do half a knee. That had good clinical results, but those patients are normal, healthy, but it was good. It was really good, but the market's only so sad. But that tells you the robot technology was okay. Then hips came next, reestablishing your center of rotation, looking at where your cup goes so you don't, gas tablet cup goes so you don't dislocate. Oh, that's 3D plan, and Mako was great at that, but always knew the more difficult one, which is a real three-dimensional problem that has limited visibility as a total knee. So started nice working with that company again, excited, and the rest is history. I've talked to a lot of people about this, and yours is the, you're the first person to sort of lay it out sequentially like that about how each area was improved until you had to move into this space. That's really a, a great way to present it. Do you think this is a time when industry was ahead of clinicians in the need for this? Were surgeons receptive to this idea? Like, yes, we need we need surgical, we need robotic help to implant these correctly, or were they more, we know what we're doing, just just give us the tools? So this is also where you don't have the average surgeon, right? Mm -hmm. So yep. you have the surgeon, we could do different profiles, right? You have the surgeon that's um, Europe and Massachusetts. So a surgeon that who was a friend of mine, chief of orthopedics at Mass General, right? Yep. He was the same person where if he was teaching my engineering class, you don't use a calculator until you learn how to do long division by hand, and then eventually we'll get it for you. So he resisted the robot, didn't want the robot in the hospital, thought we were taking medicine out of surgeons' hands. And then I remind him, though, when he goes on an airplane from Boston to London, would he prefer that plane's on autopilot? Or would he prefer the pilot? To, and he tells me autopilot, and then we get into this conversation. <laughs> it's a no-win. But then we have the surgeons who are the residents at that time, and residents in the early 2000s, and residents totally adopted the technology. They're more technology savvy. They have no problem looking at a screen. They have no problem trusting a piece of equipment. They play games, you know, games, things like that. So they're good with their hands while yep. they're watching some other action out of it. The adoption from younger surgeons, especially in their residency, was huge. And then you have a middle bunch of surgeons, like surgeons at the large community hospitals that don't do high volume, that just don't want to take a risk because they think it's an unproven technology, and they wait for peer-reviewed publications, and they want to see clinical results. So you had, you had many different stakeholders that mm -hmm. had different criteria for the acceptance. Yes, on the podium, I have been almost attacked by surgeons who told me I'm destroying medicine and taking medicine out of surgeons' hands. Wow. And then I remind the surgeons, they're using striker power tools. They're using striker cutting blocks and cutting instruments. This is just another cutting instrument that's just more precise. That's executing your plan, surgeon, which is accurate. We are now making the incision. This is still all about the exact same bone cuts that striker participated in before through instrument design. So we've gotten to a point right now where we've done very well. And now with 400 plus peer review publications, peer review publications, We've now been able to see less pain because of robotics compared to manual procedures. Earlier return to flexion, less physical therapy, less use of opioids, better patient satisfaction. And I could go on and on, but you know, now you're getting to a point where people are getting out of a car better because the knee's in the right spot. They're actually walking up and down stairs better because the knee's in the spot. And that that hitting that target for that patient, the only way to do it consistently and reproducibly is with a robot. So knowing that, but at the same time, let's remember what's left in the patient's the implant. So the implant story is not over yet either because the implant's the one that provides the motion and sort of survives the test of time. But we've, we solved with 
now the robot, a clinical issue, which was the next current clinical issue, and patient satisfaction numbers are dramatically improved over what it was even a decade ago. That's outstanding. So did you, with Mickey, you had been with Stryker for a short time a, a while ago. What was your feeling when you learned of the, I'm sure you, you were aware of it before it was announced, but what was your feeling about the Stryker acquisition of Ameco? Did you feel like this was the, the sort of the solid fuel booster rocket you needed to really take off? Did you, or did you have a desire for Mako to change the world and not, and not be part of a larger company? How are you viewing things? At that time of the acquisition, we had a regulatory process in place to try to get the total knee accepted. So the thought was, this is going to be unbelievably successful, Mako, if the total knee gets through the FDA. And the data was looking good, so we're really confident. But you know, you can have the world's best device, but if no one uses it, what good is it? And in the world of transforming a market, right? Robotics is true transformation. You're taking people that for decades have done a surgical procedure a certain way. You're trying to get them to think differently. You're trying to teach them that maybe what they're doing that they thought was great isn't as great and can get better and trust this piece of equipment. Well, Stryker brings trust versus Mako, which was an unknown entity. Salesforce and Stryker, Stryker's success in our Salesforce is amazing. And the Salesforce targeting these surgeons with a consistent message with what marketing does, that, that's a valuable. And then having surgeons talk in medical education meetings from the podium, that's how it becomes a standard of care. By itself, getting the early adopters, the adoption curve would go too long. And then by the time you get it to mainstream, that would go too long. You needed a sales and marketing engine. Mako, although could do it, it could not do it to the extent. And certainly, um, as, as we look back, everything that we thought about the striker benefit has turned out, in many cases, better than some people have thought. Fantastic. So let's look at today and, and, and sort of where we're headed. We were talking about the progressions that got us up to robotics. I feel like we're at a point, and when you were at Device Talks Boston last year, you were on a panel about Stryker's digital surgical strategy, which of robotics is a part. You are president of digital robotics and enabling technology at Stryker. It feels like we've moved on from talking about just robotics as its own solution to being part of a broader digital solution. Where, where are we in sort of that transformation, or, or are we just applying new names to the same things? No, I think it's not only a new name, though, but we're living in a new age, and it's the digital age. We, we didn't have this years ago. You know, remember how I talked about different clinical issues through the decades, but you were dealing with new technologies to deal with the decades, right? You mentioned some other companies, and, you know, some other companies may want custom implants. But these are all technologies that enable this, right? New materials, new processing, 3D printing. 3D printing is a process that allowed a new way of thinking, and we've been able to design differently because of being enabled by 3D printing. Robotics, now we could look at placement of an implant, individualized, different because of a technology. Now we are afforded the opportunity where we could look at digital healthcare data, which we have not done as an industry. So we can look at orthopedics, but you could look at endoscopy, you could look at neurovascular, you could look at other things. And there's still a lot that, not to take any skill away from the surgeon, but to provide more information to that surgeon for decision-making. So we'll go back to the total knee because we use that example. So now I said, okay, I'm gonna take your CT scan. And then with Mako, I could plan it preoperatively by making bone models off your CT and you, and then I'm gonna put it in. But that's only one piece of you. Now we have to go to the next level. 
are you obese or you're not obese? Should you get the implant in the same place if you have a BMI of 39 or a 25? Mm. Are you 64 years old or are you 85 years old? What's the best striker implant for you? How long have you been suffering from arthritis? How damaged are your bone surfaces? Can we quantify that and recommend which striker prosthesis is best for you? On top of all that, should you get a cemented or a cementless implant? Is your bone mass density good enough for that? Now can we favor revision rates? Ah, based on you, and let's just say, okay, you're 30 BMI, you're 60 years old, your bone arthritis extent is damaged bone to this, your bone mineral density, your osteoporotic. Oh, and by the way, you're a diabetic. Are you safe for outpatient surgery or should you stay in the hospital for one night? Or should you stay in the hospital for three nights? Ah, there's an economic point to that, isn't there? Hmm. There's a hospital efficiency point in there, isn't there? You have a nursing shortage now. Could a company like Stryker help participate? Oh, and by the way, should you take four weeks of physical therapy or do you need eight? Or if you do the extra four, is it a waste of your time? What's your expectation based on your size, shape, and age that you go back to work? What does success look like for you? You may not get the same patient satisfaction I should get, but maybe we shouldn't have the same parameter of what our expectations should be. When can you get out of a car unaided? When can you walk up and down stairs without a problem? Those are all related to possibly what striker implant you got, mm -hmm. where that implant goes, and your journey of care. So can striker now participate where we're executing a surgical plan on that specific patient with all that data. So what's changed now that we didn't have? Well, before, even if I had this great plan, I didn't have a way to execute the plan. That's why the striker robot is so unique, where Mako between haptics and accuracy and all this, everything precision-wise, we can execute a plan. But that that's a piece of it. Now think about the patient and think about helping the surgeon with more information to decide what striker implants better, what course of care, and where should the site of care be. Five years ago, this was impossible because we didn't have the tool to execute it. But you know what else? You as a patient, you weren't going to give your data to anyone, were you, five years ago? <laughs> now you probably feel a little different. You know, when years ago, hospitals didn't want to work with a company that sold them products. Patients didn't necessarily trust surgeons with more information, and they certainly didn't trust companies. Now we're living in a day and age where third-party payers, governments, not just the United States, around the world, realize that if we all participate together and look at electronic health records to the surgical procedures that striker equipment participates in, maybe we can have different decision-making that can help determine a plan, execute a plan, and a post-operative course of action for that patient. Now that all these digital different things can come together, including what the physical therapist says, things like that, we can now do data intelligence and data engineering that'll turn into algorithms that we can nicely embed into striker pre-planning software or that are nicely pre-planned in the execution on the piece of equipment on striker software. So that is really the next evolution. Now, how do you evolve the software? And if you think of all the striker equipment in the operating room, we're one of the only companies that can outfit a whole operating room. We can actually outfit a big piece of the back of an ambulance as well. So we can talk about emergency care and site of care. But if you think in the operating room now, let's connect the whole operating room together. Now let's get more data ongoing on the patient. Let's take more data on pre-plans, help with the decision-making. 
and then help even more so with striker equipment that may already exist in the operating room with software upgrades to execute the plan in ways we never could have conceived before a decade ago. That's outstanding. I'm getting chills, I'll admit. <laughs> That's pretty exciting stuff. But you're setting uh, ambitious goals. Do you have much of what you need to to accomplish that right now? Or are you sort of projecting where we're going to be a decade from now? No, this is a lot sooner than a decade from now. We're working on it. But but to, to Stryker's credit, um, the leaders at Stryker understood that this is not necessarily a competency that Stryker's talked about in the past. And in our decentralized structure where we got divisions and we got business units, they're very focused on what they're doing. They're producing great implants. They're working with surgeons and they're very focused on their market segments. So there's a trauma market segment. So you have sales, marketing, R&D. There's a spine, you have sales, marketing, R&D. But in the world of electronic health records, that benefits the whole company. Whether you get access to an Epic system or some other hospital data system, once you do a data access agreement, that hospital, that data can benefit, but we didn't have a centralized entity to be able to look at that and be able to figure out how to leverage that and then add it to value of what the divisions are doing onto those products. So we created a year and a half ago, this entity that we call Digital Robotics Enabling Technologies that I am part of. And now that's to stay, just like the division stay laser focused on the customer, this is for us to stay laser focused on the technology. What's going on in the world of digital? What's going on in the world of health records? What's going on in the world of product security? How do we assure there's no bias in algorithm development? We're looking at all that local regulations as well as managing the R&D groups that are doing the robotics, the software, the navigation units for Craney ENT. Why is that all put together? Because as Stryker, we can get data off that equipment that's unique data sets. Then we can look at that into this digital world and then the way we can introduce it into the market is actually do it through software upgrades on the systems that we already have placed through the divisions or provide a portal for surgeon pre-planning. To get that done, that's not a one division product. A portal benefits the whole company. Electronic health records benefits the whole company. Understanding, say, success with patient data on orthopedics. Do you know one of the success parameters if you got a total hip, if you got a total knee? If you got lower spine, if you had foot and ankle, even if you had shoulder, one of the success criteria is mobility. Another success criteria is readmission reoperation. Those are all the same, which bridges three different or four different divisions. Mm -hmm. And now that's what we try to do: consolidate that so Striker can innovate and Striker can accelerate. And we want to do this fast, and we want to be a leader at it. How does that happen? We've seen Stryker with make some interesting acquisitions for Sarah. We talked about on the podcast, Gauss Surgical, we had uh, had on the panel with you in, in Boston using an interesting form of AI to measure blood loss during surgery. Is this something that you develop internally at Stryker? Or are you looking outwards at acquiring these types yeah, of technologies? The well, Sarah is, was a very interesting acquisition for us because that gets us into nursing staff. It gets us into the operating room. And that's why that's embedded within Stryker Medical because you know, everything they're doing in the, in the in the patient room is fascinating. This adds more efficiency, value. It's another form of data collection, too. So it's super exciting. Thinking more about what happens when you're talking to my group is probably more about the operating room and surgical okay. innovation. So if we focus on surgical innovation, so Gauss, good example. Gauss looked at blood hemorrhaging with AI and cameras and to determine if somebody was hemorrhaging off blood on sponges and looking at color patterns on blood and sponges to the volume of blood loss. The Gauss group, since we talked, is actually now part of my group. 
And they've actually, so now we have a digital robotics enabling tech, artificial intelligence group in Menlo Park. So we're going to do, oh, wow. so that's actually to leverage across the whole organization. So it shows you, Striker, we're going to put this stuff and we're going to put it on steroids and we're going to go quick. But now we will not succeed. A slow, it doesn't matter how big Striker is. It doesn't matter how old Striker long has been around. A slow company will fail. You could be the Medtronics, the J&Js, the Siemens, the Philips. You look at some of these small companies in this digital space. If you don't move quick, you will fail. For us to build the competency and desire to want to do it internally, that will take too long. And there are a lot of others that work on it elsewhere. So, no, we will partner with large tech companies, digital companies. We will partner with people that have data access. We will partner with hospital systems. And we will partner in ways to get access to talent, which includes even at the university level. What keeps coming to mind with me, for some reason, it's all over the news, chat GPT, the AI program. And I keep thinking about how that could be applied to medicine and how you could have a basis of a foundation of knowledge that every doctor could access. And maybe we don't miss the things that are missed. How do the strides that we're seeing in AI through chat GPT and some other programs make you feel? Do you feel like we're accelerating and that all of this is going to build into the plan that you're sort of discussing right now? We have to be really cautious, right? Because, because so I'm a technical guy, right? Yeah, you know, okay. AI, AI could be dangerous, right? You, you can have AI and you could have so much bias in AI where you've got different patient groups, different patient demographics, different hospitals with different access to equipment. Mm. And you could be providing these insights where you're pointing someone in the right direction, in the wrong direction. So let's just be clear. Striker is not practicing medicine and we have no intention to practice medicine. Sure. Our goal is to get population health statistics off either our equipment, off government databases, tie it together to be that vehicle so that surgeon now has another source of information. And if we could look at things like, as I said, the comorbidities of someone, the characteristics of a patient, and further identify them as a unique in individual, then we can pull that and have the surgeon compare that to others of like on a large database and get some insights to that. Or in the operating room, it's like, geez, this knee is too loose this way and this way before we do any cuts, what's the planning? Maybe we can have some automated algorithms that will give the surgeon you know, all the mathematical formulas in the background and spit out, here's an optimal plan based on the input you provided surgeon. That's as far as we're going for a period of time. Sure. Now, AI though, is not just for, just, everyone sometimes confuses AI's decision-making, but now let's switch gears and get off orthopedics for a second. Let's take endoscopy. What about, a or neurovascular, you're putting a, you know, you've got a stroke victim, you need to put something right up here, but you gotta go through here and you gotta go through the rest of the body and you gotta go a long way to meander to get there. Well, maybe AI on computer vision. So looking at the video feeds that are coming off all striker endoscopy equipment. Now, if we could do tissue recognition with artificial intelligence to say that tissue's that, that tissue's that, you better avoid this because there's a high probability you going straight's gonna be a problem. That is a good safety perspective that we can provide a surgeon. If you're on a fluoroscope and you're trying to get a scope through someone's neck and you need to go right or left, maybe through AI, we can give some indication and what the best, quickest, shortest approach may be. So I think when you think of AI, think in the world of data, but then think of it like this. Think of there's different aspects. There's AI for improved outcomes. There's AI for quality of care. There's AI for safety. And there's AI for efficiency and economics. And how all that ties in are different depending on what procedure it is. 
we may find fall detection in the operating room. So safety in AI and predicting a patient that's more of a fall risk is going to be better. Maybe computer vision to avoid a blood vessel and have a bleeder through endoscopy equipment is going to be better. But maybe in a total knee replacement, that that knee for that specific patient who may be obese should go here, we recommend, based on population health of similar type patients. That gives a surgeon access to more information that that surgeon ever had before. So just wrapping up with the, with the acquisition of Mako, we mentioned it was 10 years ago. Stryker's a much different company now, I think, than it was then for lots of reasons. I think Mako was, was part of it. How do you see companies like Stryker looking? How different are they going to look? I had offered 10 years earlier. You said we may get some of this stuff done earlier. How do you see a company? How do you see Stryker looking in five years or so? Is it going to be, we'll have drastically different offerings, bringing in, looking at it from a digital surgery sort of perspective? Will it, it look different than it does today? No, I, I don't think it's going to look all that different, but I think it's going to have more to it, right? So you're going to be able to do different things. So let's take Mako Robot, which we've been talking about. It's nine, uh, it's almost nine years on one month. You look at what it's done for total knees. Well, we announced we're working on a total shoulder program. There's no robots in total shoulders right now. When that gets released, that runway is so large. There's so many different things we could do in shoulders with the existing Mako platform. So that's a new application to an existing platform. That's super exciting. That will solve clinical issues. Then Mako Spine. There's a lot of different spine robots out there, but there's nothing like Mako right now. We combine that to some of the imaging system and power instrument systems we have. We will stand alone. And I could go on and on. So there's different applications we could keep adding. So you'll see that over the next five years. Then you will see population health and electronic health record data compiled now to provide surgeons that are using striker equipment, whether for planning or whether for execution, more information to be better about that improved outcomes, quality, safety, or efficiency economics. You'll see that, and you'll still see an evolution on the implant side with technologies such as 3D printing. You'll be able to see different services, you know, and maybe five years from now, maybe we, we keep using total knee, so I'll use that. Maybe the incision's half the size, and maybe we disrupt more soft tissue, and maybe it doesn't go in from the front. Now, maybe with 3D implants, 3D printing of implants, maybe the knee implant doesn't look anything like it does today, all enabled by a robotic preparation that could be less soft tissue sparing. So now a procedure could be faster at an outpatient surgery center, and that patient will have less pain and will be able to return to function and work a lot sooner. Enabled by a technology with creative implants, the marrying of the two together with digital health data that's never been seen before. Fantastic. Well, let's wrap up with a completely different topic, but one I know that's important to you. You're in the, the New Jersey Institute of Technology's Board of Trustees. You're obviously, you've got your, your eyes set on the future of, of engineering. How do we continue to build sort of a pipeline of talent for biomedical engineering? And what advice do you give students at the Institute when you talk to them? I'm sure you do about what they should be prepared for for the future. Yeah, it's a very interesting. Yeah, I'm very proud to share the trustees of my alma mater. It, keeps me in touch with students, keeps me in touch with faculty, but also keeps me in touch with early stage compelling research. And I get to see a little bit what governments are doing too. You know, what you find the students coming in right now is very different. I'm not going to guess your age, but you know, when we went to college, when you went to college, maybe one or two or more years old, college, you probably only had a choice of four or five or six different degrees, right? Now your choice is 200 that are more narrow. 
But now what we're finding in the STEM world, right? So if you look at the STEM world, you know, people like me who used to go for mechanical engineering degrees, now they're thinking, are they going to go mechanical or are they going to go computer science or data engineering? And now we sort of changed the world where you look at now this computer digital sort of connected in. So mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, civil engineering, it's all very fascinating how this is all combining. And students, quite honestly, are a little bit confused. So what we've been trying to do, especially at New Jersey Institute of Technology, is making and starting in their second year more industry relevant work. So the projects are really more tied to what industry would need at the present moment versus from decades ago. We actually bring in striker speakers oh. into New Jersey Institute of Technology and help mentor students and things like that. We also bring up people from school. But we're doing this in our Florida location with University of Miami. We're doing this others. So where the talent pool comes from is a couple of things. STEM is alive and well. So there's no shortage, there's no necessarily shortage of students. I wish more people would computer science or product security or cybersecurity. There's a shortage there. But when we look at the students, I think the students and the schools are doing a good job on education. I really do. Striker now, we're a little bit more forward in targeting certain colleges to get our brand early to where we get internships and get that to get that talent funnel coming. But by the same token, we're also Coming more of the philosophy that we don't need to do as much internally. You know, some of these great universities have equipment that costs a lot of money. They got the equipment there. They got the faculty professor who knows how to run the equipment better than we do. They got postdoc students. Why are we not accelerating at a reasonable cost benefit ratio, by the way, at these universities? And that, again, is going to further talent as a feeder. So collaborative projects with universities, um, branding to keep the funnel coming and give it striker visibility to it, keeping us current with what's topical at the universities and our participation with students, whether through mentoring or project, we are taking a very, very forward thinking approach here. Right now, I can tell you that I, we've done this for a little bit while now. Our funnel of students is extremely well and it's quite remarkable, the talent coming out of university. Academia is doing a nice job. Fantastic. Well, this has been a, a terrific conversation, really eye-opening, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you back at uh, Device Talks Boston in May, Robert. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Sounds great. Thanks again. Appreciate it. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much to Viant for supporting this episode of the Striker Talks podcast. Thank you, Robert Cohen, for joining us. And thank you to you, of course, for listening. Great to have you here. Please uh, make sure you subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network so you can have future episodes of Striker Talks sent directly. You'll be sending out many more this year. Excited to be working with Striker on this. You'll also get episodes of the Device Talks weekly podcast and a few new podcasts that will be coming out. So uh, make sure you, again, subscribe to the Device Talks podcast network on any major podcast application please also share this episode of striker talks on your social media channels and if you haven't already connected with me please do i am on linkedin tom s-a-l-e-m-i i'd love to connect with you and uh, talk about striker once again thanks for joining us and uh, tune in next time we'll have another great episode of the striker talks podcast sent directly to you <laughs>